0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them. Yet, but for the accident of birth, you might even be as they are. They did not ask to be brought into the world, but into the world they came. Thus begins a movie such as had never been seen before and hasn't been seen since. Todd Browning's 1932 movie, Freaks. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you think of MGM movies, your mind probably drifts to classics like Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, or maybe you think of the Bond franchise. You wouldn't immediately associate MGM with human oddities on display, but maybe you should. In the time before TV, before movie theaters, the highlight of your year might be the appearance of a traveling carnival, with its games, rides, and of course, the freak show. Appearing in the 10 and one tent was sometimes the only work available to people whose bodies were born in such a configuration that they couldn't support themselves otherwise. Many freak show performers earned a good living in the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, a living far in excess of that of the people paying to see them. The 1932 movie Freaks, with an exclamation point in the title, tells the story of a traveling circus full of performing acts like horseback riders and clowns, as well as the natural-born attractions like the half-man, the human worm, the living skeleton, and the bearded lady. The beautiful trapeze artist seduces a wealthy dwarf, all the while planning to marry him and kill him for his money in cahoots with the strongman. At their wedding feast, the freaks welcome the trapeze artist into their pseudo-family, chanting, One of us, one of us, we accept her. The trapeze artist lashes out at them, calling them filthy, dirty freaks, and humiliating her new husband by treating him like a baby. It still takes a while for the other freaks to convince the dwarf, but once a bottle of poison is found, and the trapeze artist's secret is revealed, the freaks exact their revenge in one of the most underrated scenes ever put to film, in this reporter's opinion anyway. The monsters of the movie are the beautiful trapeze artist and the handsome strongman, whereas the freaks are the ones you're rooting for. The story of freaks actually starts in 1925 with the silent film The Unholy Three, directed by Todd Browning and starring the inimitable Lon Chaney. The film co-starred Harry Earls, A dwarf playing a criminal who pulls scams by posing as a baby. According to the apocryphal history of things, Earls, eager to find more acting work, brought a short story about a pair of circus performers who take advantage of a wealthy dwarf to Browning's attention. Browning was immediately interested and convinced MGM to buy the rights to the story. The film adaptation was to star Lon Chaney, but the project got stuck in pre production. And then cheney passed away from lung cancer in 1930 shortly after filming a talky remake of the unholy three monster movies were popular enough in the silent film era but really took off when diegetic sound became standard in 1931 fresh off the success of directing dracula for universal todd browning finally got the green light for his passion project as MGM's head of production, Irving Thalberg, hoped for a horror smash hit of their own. According to Browning's biographer, it became a case of be careful what you wish for. The story goes that after reading the script for Freaks, Thalberg hung his head and said, Well, I asked for something horrible, and I guess I got it. It's worth remembering that this was the era of the Hays Code, a restrictive set of guidelines placed on motion pictures to curb supposed immorality. It forbade certain types of violence, any mention of homosexuality or birth control, ridicule of church officials, and so on and so on. You can hear about it in greater detail in episode 40, Words You Can't Say on TV or Radio. Shooting the movie was no picnic. The eponymous freaks were poorly treated by various MGM employees who bristled at the idea of having to eat their lunch near such people. In a supposed peacekeeping effort, Thalberg arranged a compromise. The more normal-looking cast members, like the dwarves Harry and Daisy Earls, and the conjoined twins Violet and Daisy Hilton, could eat in the commissary, but the rest of the cast were relegated to a tent that was erected outside. Early screenings of the film were a disaster, moving Thalberg to push the film's wider release back a month so changes could be made. Changes made without consulting Browning. Thalberg cut the film from 90 minutes to around 60, cutting most of the revenge sequence and a number of the scenes that humanized the freaks, as well as adding a new opening and epilogue. Both audience and critical reactions were negative, with people fleeing theaters, and one woman claiming the movie had caused her to have a miscarriage. Freaks actually did okay in a few cities, like San Diego, where the uncut version set a house record for ticket sales. But those exceptions weren't enough, and MGM pulled Freaks from theaters at a reported loss of $164,000, which was about half of its budget. The next year, in an effort to recoup some of that, Thalberg re-released the film without the MGM logo under the new title Nature's Mistakes. It did less well the second time. Freaks was essentially forgotten until the 1962 Cannes Film Festival, where it was shown and declared to be a neglected classic. Film archivist Raymond Rohr obtained the rights and marketed it as a cult film, whereafter freaks became a staple of midnight movies in the 70s and 80s. A film about circus life was actually a natural step for the man born Charles Albert Browning in 1880. He had literally run away with the circus at age 16 after falling in love with one of the dancing girls. A natural entertainer, Browning worked as a clown and acted in vaudeville, which was where he eventually met director D.W. Griffith, and got his first break in the movies in 1913, appearing as an undertaker. At some point, Browning dropped his birth name for Todd with one D, which means death in German, as well as trick or fox in Old English. Once he got to Hollywood, Browning never looked back, never returning to his family in Louisville, Kentucky, not even for his mother's funeral. Browning became one of the most successful directors in Hollywood, until he made Freaks. The industry as a whole, and Louis B. Mayer of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, never forgot or forgave him for it. Browning only directed four more films, two of them uncredited, before retiring to live alone with his dogs in Malibu until his death in 1962. Harry Earls, who put the idea for Freaks into Browning's head, was born Kurt Schneider in Germany in 1902, 1902 one of seven siblings, three of whom were average size and four of whom were dwarves. His sister Daisy co-starred with him in Freaks, playing the love interest he spurns in favor of the trapeze artist. Harry, Daisy, Gracie, and Ellie billed themselves as the Doll family when all four worked together, though Harry and Gracie also toured as a duo, Hansel and Gretel. They adopted the last name of their manager, Bert Earls, who brought them to America and put them up in his family home, they toured with a Wild West show before being picked up by Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus and their greatest show on earth. Little people became the hot new thing in Hollywood, so the always sharp-dressed Harry began promoting himself and his sisters to directors. Separately or together, the siblings appeared in dozens of movies, including many Laurel and Hardy shorts. They were so ubiquitous, they became known as the moving picture midgets. That was their marketing, don't at me. Their final movie appearance was in 1939's Wizard of Oz, where Harry was a member of the Lollipop Guild. Like all the other munchkins, they were uncredited and poorly paid, earning, I kid you not, less than the dog that played Toto. This soured the earl's siblings on the movie biz, and they returned to stage life and the circus. The Dahl family retired from performing in 1958 and lived their remaining years in a state-of-the-art house in Florida, especially designed to suit their size. Another sibling pair that appeared in the movie were Daisy and Violet Hilton. The Hilton sisters were born in Brighton, England in 1908, pygopagus twins, meaning fused at the pelvis. Their mother rejected them, seeing the conjoined twins as divine punishment for getting pregnant out of wedlock, and she sold the babies to her boss, Mary Hilton, who had helped deliver them. Auntie, as the girls called her, recognized the commercial potential of conjoined twins and put them on display in the back room of a pub. Any men in Auntie's life were referred to as sir. And between Auntie and the Sirs, Daisy and Violet endured years of near constant physical and emotional abuse. They toured the world from the age of three, singing and dancing, seeing limited success in Europe before coming to America in 1915. They were initially denied entry at San Francisco as being medically unfit, but Auntie was able to create a media frenzy that put sufficient pressure on authorities. When Auntie died, she left the girls to her biological daughter Edith and Edith's partner, Meyer Myers, a balloon salesman from Australia, who were actually more cruel than Auntie had been. Myers signed all of the girls' contracts and never told them the details. Kept captive for a majority of their time, the twins were forced to practice their various stage talents, such as playing saxophone and violin, for hours on end. They even had to sleep in the same room as Edith and Myers, so that they could keep an eye on them. Edith and Myers kept the girls in check with physical abuse and threatening to have them institutionalized. Even though the Hilton sisters were a hit on vaudeville in the 20s, taking in the equivalent of $75,000 a week, they never saw a dime of it. It was actually Harry Houdini who counseled the girls to educate themselves on their public persona and their success. After that, the sisters found the will to fight for their freedom. A lawyer helped Daisy and Violet secure legal emancipation in January of 1931 and a monetary award equivalent to $1.6 million. Freedom wasn't a cure-all, though. Having no experience managing their own money or promoting themselves, and with vaudeville on its way out, the twins' career stalled. Violet fell in love with a musician but they couldn't get married because they were refused a marriage license in 21 states. Later, the sisters each at one point married an entertainer who would later be revealed to be gay. One lasted for 10 years, the other for 10 days. In addition to freaks, they starred in the movie Chained for Life, a drama based loosely on their lives. Eventually, Daisy and Violet couldn't get booked for appearances anymore. They landed a small ad campaign for Philip Morris, promoting twin-pack potato chips at a park-and-shop grocery store in North Carolina. Their tour manager abandoned them, with no transportation or income. So the sisters, now in their 60s, asked the owner of the grocery store for a job, offering to work for a single salary. The Hilton sisters had finally found a home, as the local community rallied around them. They stayed in North Carolina, one sister working the cash register while the other bagged groceries, until their death from the Hong Kong flu in 1969. If you enjoy learning about conjoined twins, head on over to patreon.com yourbrainonfacts, where the next bonus mini-episode is going to be about the conjoined twins, Millie Christine, as well as Myrtle, the four-legged woman. When you join our valued supporters like Vera, Crispy Platypus, Michael, Trisha, Seth, and Nathan, you also get access to all of the other bonus mini-episodes that I've put up, like Surprisingly Childish Weapons of World War II, The History of Female Urinals, Celebrities You Forgot Killed Someone, and other topics that are just a bit left-field or risque for the main show as well as, of course, getting stickers, swag, and the Patreon-exclusive podcast, Spot the Lie. Those twos and fews really do help me put the show on.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places—Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan—but nowhere as important to the world as China— Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
2: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.
0: One of the most surreal images of the revenge sequence in Freaks is that of a human torso, a man with no limbs, crawling through the mud with a knife clenched menacingly between his teeth. This was Prince Randian, billed as the Living Torso. No source I could find knew Prince Randian's real name or much about his early life. We do know that he was born in Demerara, British Guiana in 1871 to British Indian servants. He had no legs and only a small portion of arm coming off each shoulder. He was brought to the U.S. by P.T. Barnum in 1889 and began his performing career, which would include years in Coney Island, variously billed as The Living Torso, The Snake Man, The Human Worm, The Human Cigarette Factory, or The Amazing Caterpillar Man. Randian didn't just sit in his booth and let the audience look at him. He would write, paint, shave his face, or roll his own cigarettes, which would become his signature move, all with his mouth. You can see it in the uncut version of Freaks, though the cut version only shows him lighting the cigarette. Randian was also highly intelligent, and could speak English, German, and French, in addition to his native Hindi. He married a woman we know only as Princess Sarah. Together, they had four children, and the family eventually settled in Patterson, New Jersey, where they lived until Randian died of a heart attack at the age of 63. Most of the cast of Freaks signed up for the job of their own volition the exception being the performers known then as pinheads. Most suffered from microcephaly, a medical condition in which the brain does not fully develop. Sufferers have smaller-than-normal heads, intellectual disabilities, poor motor functions, poor speech, abnormal facial features, are prone to seizures, and may also suffer from dwarfism. One of the best-known pinheads in the biz was Schlitzie. Like Prince Randian, we don't know much of Schlitzie's early life. According to his death certificate, he'd been born in the Bronx in 1901, and Schlitzie may or may not have been his real name. What we do know is that Schlitzie went from one caretaker to another his entire life. Even as an adult, he had the mental capabilities of a preschooler and could only speak in difficult-to-decipher phrases. Schlitzie worked for nearly every major circus of the early 20th century, including the Dobrich International Circus, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, the Tom Mix Circus, and the Clyde Beatty Circus. Schlitzie spent much of those decades performing as a female, which we also see in Freaks. Schlitzie's gender swap wasn't an artistic choice as much as a practical one. He was incontinent, and being in a dress made it easier for his carers to change his diaper. In 1936, while with the Tom Mix Circus, a chimp trainer named George Surtees became Schlitzy's legal guardian. Surtees reportedly loved and cared for Schlitzy as if he were family. After Surtees died in 1965, care of Schlitzy fell to Surtees' daughter, who wanted nothing to do with him, and had Schlitzy committed to a mental institution in Los Angeles. There he remained for three lonely years. "'Far removed from the home he knew "'among the tents and animals and fellow performers. "'It was a sideshow sword swallower named Bill Unks, "'who was working in the hospital in the off-season, "'who recognized Schlitzie, "'and lobbied the hospital to become Schlitzie's guardian. "'Schlitzie was able to return to life in the circus, "'eventually retiring to Hollywood as a street performer "'when he became too old to travel. "'Schlitzie spent his golden days in MacArthur Park,' feeding the pigeons and ducks. He's buried in Queen of Heaven Cemetery under a black marble headstone paid for by fans bearing the name Schlitzie Certi. Of all the sideshow performers, two foot 11 or 53 centimeter Angelo Rositto, had the most extensive film career. Rositto was born to a Sicilian American family in Omaha, Nebraska. He was already a silent screen veteran having been discovered by John Barrymore for a role in The Beloved Rogue five years before making Freaks. He would go on to steady, if underpaid, work in a variety of films for the next 55 years. Rosito worked with the biggest names in Hollywood, like Bella Lugosi and Vincent Price, and worked very near Shirley Temple. He was actually her stunt double, Rosito portrayed dwarfs, midgets, gnomes, and pygmies, as well as aliens and monsters, in film productions that ranged from wonderful to woeful. Oh, and did I mention he was master of the Master Blaster duo in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Yeah, same guy. In 1957, along with fellow actor Billy Barty and others, Rosito co-founded the Little People of America, a nonprofit that provides support and information to people of short stature and their families. Adult stature of less than 4 foot 11 or 150 centimeters can be caused by any of more than 200 conditions under the umbrella of dwarfism. The group went through a number of name changes, originally called Midgets of America, then Midgets and Dwarves of America, then Dwarves and Midgets of America. I say that's interesting because since changing to Little People of America in 1960s, the group has fought against the use of the word midget as a derogatory slur, where it had been a specific classification of little person. Ironically, though Rosito had the longest and most storied career of any cast member of Freaks, I could find the least information about him. He really needed somebody to boost the signal. Speaking of boosting the signal... Thanks for the retweets over on Twitter to Eric, Richard, Amber, and The Great Podcasts, Turn of Phrases, Stories of Your and Yours, Odd Dad Out, and The Presidency's Podcast, as well as the people who interacted with our Facebook page at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts, like Jacob, Nick, and Maria. If you want to hang out with your fellow brainiacs and share interesting tidbits that you find, go to facebook.com groups slash brainiacbreakroom, which is where I post interesting things that I come across that don't fit with the theme of that week's show. Remember that word of mouth and personal referrals are still the number one way that podcasts gain new listeners, so if you're enjoying a show, my show, or anyone else's, tell people about it. In August of 1911, Amelia Eckert gave birth to twin boys, the first, as typical as could be, but the second looking as if he had been snapped off at the waist, as he himself would later describe it. John Eckert Jr. had a rare birth defect called sacral agenesis, an abnormal development or lack of development of the lower portion of the spine. Johnny did have lower limbs, but they were non-functional, and he kept them obscured under custom-made clothing. His parents treated him exactly as they treated his twin brother, Robert, and his older sister. By the age of one, Johnny was walking around on his hands, before Robert was even standing. Their sister, Caroline, taught the boys to read at the age of four. Johnny was so popular in school that other boys would fight over who got to carry him up the front steps. The school did have to paint over the windows of his classroom, though, to stop curious people from gawking. At age 12, while attending a magic show at a local church, Johnny shocked the performer, John McCaslin, by scampering on stage when McCaslin asked for a volunteer. McCaslin saw dollar bills in this half-boy and convinced the Eckert family to sign both Robert and Johnny to a one-year contract. After it was signed, McCaslin added a zero to the duration, locking the boys into a ten-year contract. Despite that, The brothers enjoyed performing in the magic shows and were part of a trick no one could steal from them. Illusionist Raja Raboid would call for a volunteer for a hypnosis trick and pull Robert from the crowd. Robert would go into a box, the kind you use for sawing someone in half. Robert would secretly switch places with Johnny, and a dwarf performer wearing trousers hiked up over his head. When Raboyd opened the box, the severed legs would run around the stage with Johnny running on his hands after them. Stagehands would round them up and Raboyd would put them back together. Fainting was not uncommon at those shows. Johnny Eck, as he would be known, moved from the magic show circuit to the carnival, billed as a solo act, though Robert was there in the beginning of his career to make for a sharp contrast. Johnny was a natural entertainer Charming audiences dressed in his tuxedo atop a tasseled stool. In addition to his famous one armed handstands, he also juggled and trained animals. Ripley's called Johnny the most remarkable man in the world. Outside of the carnival, Robert and Johnny were heavily involved in the arts, even conducting their own orchestra in Baltimore. After Freaks, Johnny appeared in three Tarzan movies, before getting in an argument with his manager over terms for the picture Devil Doll. Eck didn't appear in that movie, or any others. He later wrote in an unpublished autobiography, Many nights I would cry, lying awake in the dark, thinking of how really wonderful and exciting it would be to be working in front of the cameras on all the different giant sound stages. I got to know each member of the film crew. I was accepted not as a monster freak, but as one of them. Not twenty inches tall, but a miniature Superman. Best of all, I was special to director Todd Browning and his assistant Errol Taggart. I would ride many times alongside the great men on the big camera dolly while they were shooting scenes. Now it was all over. Done with show business, Johnny and Robert opened a small amusement park with a scale model train on which Johnny acted as conductor. I'd like to say retirement was peaceful for Eck, but in 1987, at the age of 79, he was badly beaten by burglars who had broken into his home, which severely damaged his faith in his fellow man. I'm not a religious person, but I have to hope there's a special place in hell reserved for people who would beat up An elderly man with no legs. Johnny spent much of his remaining four years alone. I met hundreds and thousands of people, he told a Baltimore Sun columnist in 1979, and none finer than the midgets and Siamese twins and Caterpillar man and the bearded woman and the human seal with the little flippers for hands. I never asked them any embarrassing questions, and they never asked me. And God, it was a great adventure. One member of the Freaks cast left an impression on audiences without saying a single word, that being Cuckoo the Bird Girl. Cuckoo was born Minnie Woolsey in 1880 with a rare disorder, virchow seckel syndrome. virchow seckel is also known as Seckel dwarfism, Harper syndrome, or bird-headed dwarfism. It's characterized by short stature, a small head, narrow, bird-like face, large slanted eyes, a recessed jaw, and mental retardation of varying degrees. In addition, Woolsey was also bald, toothless, and almost totally blind. Woolsey was taken from a Georgia insane asylum by a circus showman who dressed her in an Indian costume and christened her Minnie Ha Ha. She would perform later at Coney Island as the Blind Girl from Mars. Off stage, Woolsey would sit motionless for hours, not reacting to anything around her. Still, she managed to get into a feathered bird costume and dance on the table during the wedding feast scene of Freaks. She was only Cuckoo in the movie, because a castmate, Elizabeth Green the Stork Woman, was already billed as Cuckoo the Bird Girl in the circus sideshow circuit. Somewhere along the line, their titles got mixed up. And thus, Minnie was forever known as Cuckoo the Bird Girl. Woolsey's precise date of death is unknown, but reports exist of a car nearly running over her in 1960, which means she made it to at least 80 years old. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Minnie Woolsey has an unexpected legacy in the form of New Zealand woman, Sarah Hubalt. She too was born with virchow seckel syndrome, complete with a tiny body, significant blindness, an odd face, and bare wisps of hair. Like Woolsey, she performs on stage and TV as Cuckoo the Bird Girl. Unlike her namesake, though, this cuckoo does not have mental impairments. In fact, she holds three degrees and gave a TED Talk in 2017 on Designing for Function and Universal Access. Remember that you can always find the script and the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
2: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells.